Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program, the Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools, and we're here to defend and to promote public education. And as we remind you every week, that is education that is public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it is public in access. It is open to all children. That is just so basic for a democracy to have a public system that is open to all children, regardless of the background and their parents and their parents' views on the world, whatever they may be, however odd they may be, however antisocial they may be sometimes, that child is a future citizen of this country. Their child is a future citizen and we as a community owe it to the child to recognise they have a right to a first-rate education. Public schools should also be owned and controlled by our government through an administration, a centralised administration that is accountable for every penny of expenditure of public money. And that is the only reason why public schools are the ones that should be publicly funded because private schools, and we'll be talking about this a bit later today, they are irresponsible. They cannot be entrusted with public money. And our governments should provide a public education of first-rate standard for every child in this country. Now, we have a website at www.adogs.info and we put up a press release almost every week and sometimes two. And this week we have a press release 678, Wither Charter Schools in Australia and America. And we'll be talking a little bit about the UK too. Members of neoliberal think tanks like Jennifer Buckingham of the Centre for Independent Studies and co-author of the report Free to Choose, Charter Schools, How Charter and For-Profit Schools Could Boost Public Education. These neoliberal thinkers are promoting charter schools. Well, what are charter schools? They're privately managed but publicly funded schools. And they are promoting these privately managed but publicly funded schools, in other words, private schools, some of which are religious, as the answer to all of Australia's education funding problems. What are they really saying? They are really saying that we should go back to the 18th century and forget that we ever had public schools and we should let the private for-profit or religious not-for-profit people do the job. Now, this outrageous attempt to take over public education has already been tried in the United States and it's met opposition, and in many cases it's failed dismally. The real question is, what will happen after the presidential election in that country? But current Australian responses to the charter school movement, which is a bold-faced attempt of Profit multinational corporations and religious institutions to take over the public system, at public expense of course, have to date been less than enthusiastic. Christopher Pine's half-baked version of the English version, namely independent public schools, was trialled in Western Australia and flopped. Australian commentators on the ABC website in response to Jennifer Buckingham's interview said this, 
Any further foray into privatised education needs to address the epidemic of rotting in the sector. Private institutions across the sector devour huge amounts of public money, pay their directors handsomely and deliver mediocre results, often concealed cherry-picking their students. Disadvantaged or poorly performing students then become the exclusive purview of the state system, reinforcing the idea that it performs less well. And somebody else had this comment. Having a private school which is funded 100% by the state is a licence to waste money. And somebody else had this to say. The underpinning assumption that anything the public sector can do can be done better by the private sector is unthinking and flawed. But given the almost slavish inclination of our politicians to repeat the mistakes of the United States and the UK a decade after they have failed, public school supporters need to inform themselves on American and UK developments. What is Obama's legacy? Everyone thinks Obama's wonderful the first black president of the United States. But he has flaws like anybody else. He's very human indeed. His real education legacy, unfortunately, has been the promotion of charter schools. The growth of charter schools was a key priority in his administration's overall school reform program. Promising to promote the expansion of charter schools was one of the ways that states could win some money in Obama's signature $4.3 billion race to the top funding competition. Today, 6% of United States public school students attend charter schools, up from about 3% when he took office in 2009, and it was 2% in 2004. So it's not really a large number of children yet. This is very much a pilot program if you look at it in those terms in the United States. But Obama's been pushing it and, in fact, his children went to a charter school in Washington. So what is Trump's policy? Diane Ravitch, on her blog, noted that At a policy forum in Miami before the Council of Great City Schools, surrogates for Trump and Clinton clarified their views, sort of. Because the American presidential debates and um, the electioneering hasn't really been terribly enlightening on matters of policy. Carl Palladino remembered in New York for his racist and sexist emails during his campaign against Cuomo promised that Trump would not put an educator in charge of the education department. But that's no surprise. In other settings, both Trump and Palladino have promised to turn all federal funding over to charters and vouchers and to abandon public education. Clinton's surrogate said at this this, uh, forum that she's a big backer of charter schools but not for-profit schools. That's not at all reassuring since some of the most rapacious charter schools are technically non-profit but are managed by for-profit EMOs. Sounds a bit like some churches, doesn't it? (laughs) And some rapacious charter chains are not profit but pay their executive absolutely obscene salaries. Not their teachers, but their executives. And some non-profits are agents of privatisation even when the profit motive is absent. But where does Clinton herself stand on charter schools? That's what her surrogates are saying, two bob each way in some respects. And Clinton is a, is a fence sitter and a two bob each way person too by the looks of it. During her 2016 campaign, Clinton's position on charters became a bit less clear. After all, Sanders had been there and Elizabeth Warren, who is now um, helping Clinton, is very strong on public education. 
But during her time as a US senator from New York, for example, Clinton was a supporter of charters, and she's even taken some grief from the teachers' unions for that stance. But during this White House run, she has also criticised charters for not necessarily accepting all the same students that traditional public schools do. And she's also said that charters should supplement what public schools do and not replace them. So Diana Ravitch notes, Clinton's right, charter schools do not accept the same students that real public schools do. They can admit those they want and kick out those they don't want. And Obama went to the, one of the most famous charter schools uh, and uh, told them how wonderful they were. But the charter school he was uh, giving his speech at and saying how wonderful his education policies had been, this particular charter school uh, selected students on their academic ability and results. And if they didn't keep on getting results when they were at the school, they kicked them out. So you're dealing with highly selective institutions. Um, While it's admirable to say that charters should not replace public schools, as Clinton does, the reality is that charters drain both resources and students from public schools, causing public schools to cut their programs and staff and to have even less capacity to serve the overwhelming majority of students. And Ravitch, who used to be pro-private and pro-charter schools, has this to say, the United States simply cannot afford to have a dual school system. Listeners, I will now say that Australia simply cannot afford to have a dual system dual school system. We couldn't afford it in the 19th century and our forebears realised that. And we cannot afford to have it in the 20th century, and we've proved that. And it's more than time that our so-called leaders, they're not certainly not administrators because they've failed to administrate uh, Australia properly, our so-called leaders in Canberra should understand that we cannot afford to have a dual school system. We can afford to have one good public system that's publicly funded, and that's what we can afford. We can't afford a school system that chooses the students at once and the other required to accept all who apply. No high-performing nation in the world operates a dual school system. So if Clinton's to have an intelligent policy about public and charter schools, she must be better informed than she is at present. And she can't rely solely on charter advocates for her information about the way charters are systematically eroding public education in America. She needs only to look at what's happening in Pennsylvania, Ohio, California, Arizona, Nevada, Florida and a dozen or more other states. And a bit later in this program, listeners, we'll talk about what's happening there. Clinton might learn that more than 90% of charters are non-union. And she might bear in mind, even as late as this in her campaign, that her strongest supporters have been the NEA and the AFT, which are the teachers' unions in America, whose jobs will be lost as charters expand. Profit's not the only issue, although it is one. The central issue is privatisation and the danger to America's historic commitment to universal public education, doors open to all and not to some. And the same thing, of course, can be said about Australia. Now, the good news is that one of the Podesta emails that we've heard so much about that was leaked by WikiLeaks said that a group of billionaire reformers organised by Laureen Powell Jobs wanted to meet with Hillary about charter schools, but she couldn't make time for them. They had money to invest, you see, and they wanted to make profits on the education of American children. And Podesta responded, probably worth the time, not sure we can reassure them want to discuss by phone. Note bene, 
She didn't make time to meet with them and the staff was not sure it could reassure them. Reassure them about what? About Clinton's commitment to charter schools. And that's a good sign. Clinton might be realising who her best supporters are in the education community and it's not the elites that want to make money out of public education. Meanwhile, what's happening over in England? Politicians there, even the conservative politicians, are discovering that privatising education means an open public funding check book with no accountability. And at the end of the day, they, as elected representatives of the people, just might be held responsible for inefficient and ineffective wastage of public money. Mr Birmingham is starting to find this out, isn't he? A bit late, but the penny is starting to drop. You don't let private enterprise into the public treasury if you believe that the people you are representing, representing want to keep account of where the money's going because you can't do it unless you have a public service bureaucracy and public services that use the public money. Our 19th century forebears found it. Otherwise, what you're going to have is a pretty corrupt political system. And with private education being funded the way it is in Australia, as we know, listeners, we are well on the way. Now, Neil Carmichael over in England is the chairman of a parliamentary education committee. And on the 25th of October 2016, that's just in the last week, listeners, he's been complaining about the transparency of academy funding because over in England, academies are the English version of the charter schools. They are privately run and publicly funded. Now, Neil Carmichael complained that there was growing concern about the value for public money among England's academies. And earlier this month, that's in October 2016, the Education Funding Agency, the EFA, served a termination of funding notice on an academy trust, the Durand Academy Trust, which runs an infant and junior school in Stockwell, South London, and a boarding school for older pupils in Midhurst, West Sussex. And Sir Amyas Morse, who's the head of the National Audit Office, that is the man like our Auditor-General, who in the end looks at where public money is being spent, he appeared before the committee and noted that this Durand case did seem to be going on for quite a long time before it was picked up. Well, listeners, our vet scandal's been going on for some years, hasn't it? And everybody knew about it, but it's only just now being picked up, and we're dealing here in Australia with billions and billions and billions of dollars, which should have been going into our TAFE system. Now, over in England, the spending watchdog, which is the um, National Audit Office, otherwise known as the NAO, has concluded that there was, surprise, surprise, a level of misstatement and uncertainty that meant the truth and fairness of the accounts could not be verified. Listeners, doesn't this sound like our very own Victorian Auditor General talking about the Catholic Education Office? here in Victoria. So, speaking after the committee hearing, Mr Carmichael, who is the Conservative head of the Education Committee, Parliamentary Committee, was very concerned. He said there's growing concern about value for public money in the academy sector, from trustees earning more than the Prime Minister to multi-million pound contracts being awarded to related parties. Well, that is what happens, dear listeners, if you privatise education and give them public money. They're not about public accountability. They're about jobs for the boys 
and raking in the money and laughing all the way to the bank. And along the way, a few children might get taught to read and write. We won't talk about education. So uh, Mr Carmichael says, Ministers must get a grip and ensure that the autonomy afforded to academies is matched in government by the highest levels of transparency and accountability. All wonderful motherhood statements, but how is he going to do it unless he has direct control of where the money goes? Uh, but the, uh, he, he was looking around for scapegoats, so he looked at the Department of Education officials and he complained that they failed to provide in good time the written material necessary for the committee to scrutinise academy spending, describing the delay as unacceptable. Well, how could they if they're not the bosses of these places? So when the information was finally forthcoming, he complained, it was enigmatic and incomplete. And isn't this exactly what is now happening in Australia with our private schools and public funding. And finally, our Auditor-Generals are complaining in the same way. Meanwhile, if you're going to have schools, there are two things which are necessary in schools. First of all, there are students, and secondly, there are teachers. And the English teachers are not happy. Robert could have told you this, and Robert will be speaking about this further in this program. They are not happy in these academies. According to the BBC on the 24th of October 2016, that's this last week, almost a third of the new teachers who started jobs in English state schools in 2010 had left the sector five years later. Of 24,100 state school teachers to qualify in 2010, 30% had quit by 2015. And Schools Minister Nick Gibb revealed in a written parliamentary answer to the Liberal Democrats, and he gave them these figures, and the Liberal Democrats are saying that the figures are a damning record of Michael Gove's term as Education Secretary in which he introduced these so-called academies, which are similar to the charter schools, which are, again, similar to Mr Pine's independent public schools. The Liberal Democrat education spokesman, John Pugh in England, said that he blamed the changes brought in by Mr Gove, who'd turned more than half of the secondary schools into academies and reshaped the curriculum and rewritten the exam system. He said, It's bad enough that dedicated teachers are being driven away from the profession they love, but this is also laying the foundations for a disastrous teaching shortage in years to come if we cannot train new teachers fast enough to replace the ones that leave. So, of course, what are they doing, dear listeners? They are advertising for teachers in Australia. So it's very important that Australian teachers... Uh, listen to the drugs program and find out what is actually going on in both America and England, especially if the English are out here touting for their jobs. So uh, this is all very interesting. And the Department of Education is trying to say that more teachers are entering our classroom than those choosing to leave or retire, but they are not happy and the newly trained teachers can find better jobs elsewhere than what is on offer in the education system of England. Now, what is the conclusion? Australia should resist a slavish repetition of American and English privatisation failures. We should follow Finland, we should build up a genuinely public education system and we should withdraw public funding of private schools. It's happened before, we did it in the 19th century. We can do it again and we would save a great deal of money because in some cases we are now funding our private schools more than 100% of what we are giving to our public schools and our public schools are being starved of funds. And uh, the natives, 
the teachers and the parents are getting restless. Now, we'll have a little bit of a break. I've been really speaking for quite a long time. We'll have a little bit of music and then we'll see if we can get on to Robert. We've just been listening some, to some Carl Philip Emanuel Bach, Bach's son, uh, a composer well before his time. Uh, in the Italian tradition, uh, or Italian music tradition. But now we're going to go over and have a chat to Robert. Well, Robert, thank you so much for um, coming on to talk about teachers in England. Yep. Well, uh I've just been telling our listeners that the teachers are leaving uh, the schools in England in droves, particularly the academies. You've been in yes, England. Indeed. You've been teaching there. Perhaps you might oh, be I able can... to give them an idea of why. Oh, I can tell you exactly what the background is here, Jean. Um, I taught in Europe early in the 2000s and I've kept up lots of acquaintances and friends there. Um, basically what happened in England was that um, they had a bit of a baby boom um, in the 90s and... Um, English have a quite um, high reproduction rate, actually. They, they really make a lot of babies over there on the other side of the world in England. Um, and they had some need of teachers back in the 90s and early 2000s. 
And um, what they did was that they imported them. They imported them from the old Commonwealth countries, uh, mainly um, Australia, New Zealand and South Africa, but also other Commonwealth countries. Um, they imported the teachers because, firstly, there weren't enough teachers trained in the UK, and secondly, um, UK residents didn't seem to want to go into teaching. It was a low-status, uh, low-paid occupation, and um, there weren't many English people interested in becoming teachers at the time. So the colonials were good for something? Oh, well, the colonials were always good for something. Um, in fact, Australians, New Zealanders and South Africans had a very good reputation. They were known for going into schools, very difficult schools, and um, teaching the kids in those schools. And in fact, it was often said, um, well, it was almost impossible to find someone in England who hadn't been taught by an Antipodean um, back in the 90s and the 2000s. Anyway, this was addressed. It was considered to be a sort of a, a national priority and a problem. And what they did was they ramped up and spent a lot of money um, employing English people to become teachers once more. They didn't rack up, rack up the rages, but they made um, the idea of becoming a teacher and doing a degree substantially more attractive. And so over the middle 2000s, over the, over the middle noughties, there, were, there was an influx of young, enthusiastic, trained teachers that were Indigenous to England. And so therefore the need for Antipodean teachers went down. And you know, the Antipodeans being flexible uh, went back home. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a large proportion of the, te- a much larger proportion of the teaching staff in England were in fact Indigenous English. And this went on for about four or five years, up until you get to the present day, where over the last four or five years there's been a bit of a crisis, because what's happened is all these people have been trained to be teachers, these Indigenous English people. Um, they've gone into the school system, all enthusiastic and bright-eyed. And about three to four to five years later, they've wandered off the pitch because teaching in England is a mess. It's low paid, it's low status. In some cases, it's violent and difficult. Um, and the teachers have said, look, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm sick of this. I'm going to go away and going to go and try and do something else. Even though it's a recession, um, my mental health and my physical well-being um, calls upon me to stop teaching. And so now the English have a teaching crisis once more, principally because um, the conditions for the teachers themselves have not just been static, but they've um, basically gone backwards. And this is in large part, which is why we finally get to the point of what you're saying, Jane, this is large part because they've attempted to privatise the public school system by what they call introducing charter schools. Academies. Academies, yes, that's Privately right. run for profit. Privately At run for profit. At public expense. Indeed. Uh, the basic principle behind these is that private is good and public is bad. So if you set up a school as a business, it's going to act more efficiently when delivering the product, which, of course, is the education of the children. We know <laughs> every time this has been tried... It's bollocks, um, because efficiency of delivery of service is actually not the point when it comes to running an education system, is it, Jim? I wouldn't have thought so. Uh, and children, uh, I didn't know children were actually products. <laughs> or teachers oh, yeah. were uh, you know, products uh, too. It's quite, uh, extra- no, no. Well, quite extraordinary children, the way they think about human beings. Children are the products, and the, um, and the parents and children are the consumers. They are the customers. Right. Hmm. That's, that's, that's the premise of a privately run education model. Children and parents are the customers and the product um, that you're selling them is apparently um, this thing called education or educare, something, of course, that as you and I both know is so complex as to sort of to try and reduce it down to the idea of some form of product. It's, it's just mindless. It's stupid. It's incredibly um, um, unwise. Well, this also explains why everything has to be uh, tested and uh, given the statistics so that they can prove that they've actually produced something. Uh, if children have well, got a number on them, then that is the product, is it? That's why you've well, got course. your Pearson people with all their testing making billions around the world selling tests. 
Oh, yeah. Well, um, the sort of mania for privatisation um, goes hand-in-hand with the mania for assessment. Because if education is a product, how can you how can you place a value on the product? And the answer, the only answer from the private provider's point of view, is to um, is to have a test. Have how to much sell of something. the product? How much of the product have you put into the consumer? Um, is a question of of a test. I mean, we have NAPLAN tests here in Australia that describe how much of the product, which is education, you have put into the consumer, which is the child and the parent, and that's your NAPLAN result. And that way people can compare and you've got a marketplace and if you've got a marketplace, everything's good because that's where God lives in a marketplace and um, everything's supposed to work. Of course, this is all complete rubbish. Yes. Well, uh, we know that human beings are a little bit more complex than this, don't we? Yeah, but yeah. to return to the question of what's happening in England and the academies, um, the academies are being set up instead of building um, uh, government schools. The idea is that an academy um, is cheaper to run for the government because you've outsourced it, you've put out the contract to tender, someone's come along and they've taken up the tender and um, that way you just have to throw a certain amount of money at it every year and because it's a business they'll run it efficiently and everything will be fine. That's the principle of an academy. An academy, of course, is something that you would open instead of opening um, a, a government-run school or a state school or a state school that's open to all. Now, in the UK, the baseline um, about how you would produce or how you would have customers, that is, the students in these academies, the baseline is actually much fairer than it is here in Australia. In Australia, if you have a private school, that private school can exclude any student for any reason that they want. In fact, they are exempt from the anti-discrimination laws of all states and indeed federal federal government. So a private school in Australia can tell a child to bugger off. Um, we don't want your sort here. Um, whereas, of course, a state school in Australia um, doesn't want to do that because that's not what state schools are for. They're about free, secular and universal education. Now, in the UK, these academies um, are technically not exempt from the anti-discrimination laws of the country and they must enrol everyone that's in their catchment area. But they so are the still selecting, aren't they, in their own way? Well, they are indeed, because what happens, and this has been borne out in terms of the voucher system that has been applied in the UK, um, the schools themselves don't really have to worry about it because cultures or, or, or subcultures within certain catchment areas self-select. Mm. So in the United States... There are now, in most states in, 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 um, in the United States, certainly in the South, you have schools that are populated exclusively with white students and down the road you'll have the school that's exclusively populated with black students. Cultures self-segregate when given the opportunity by the marketplace to do so. And it's called UK, tribalism. It's called it tribalism. It is, and it cuts across the benefit of a universal education system. In fact, it cuts across the fundamental principles of the universal education system um, to the point where the free market allows for this resegregation based upon income or skin colour or indeed religion. Now, in the United Kingdom um, and in large part in Australia as well, this process of self-segregation um, is being accelerated by the opening of various academies. But what's happening is, and it's just quite stunning, is that the teachers are just leaving. The conditions that are, that, that are put forward as what is reasonable to educate uh, or to, to employ a teacher um, are now so bad that um, people are saying, look, I just don't want your job, mate. Hmm. Um, you're going to pay me this, this amount, you're going to give me this, this much support in my workplace and, you, you know, um, that's not good enough. I'm not going to do this job anymore. I'm going to resign and I'm not going to be a teacher despite the fact that in the UK they invested billions of dollars in educating all these teachers to solve the problem of you know, having to import teachers from overseas, um, they've all just been trained, they've all been educated, they've all walked, worked, worked in a school for two, three, four years and then they've all buggered off because it's, it's a mugs game in the academy system in the UK at the moment and they're running out of teachers. So mm -hmm. guess who they call upon, Jean? Guess who they call upon? Once more they call upon the colonies. And um, once more, in my inbox, I am getting people emailing me saying, would you like to work in the United Kingdom? It's brilliant. 
Um, <laughs> Been there, done that. Been there, done that. Mm. Yes, and, and, and now the pound's not quite as high as it used to be, so there's not the financial benefit for the antipodean. So we'll just have to see how this, this world works. Also, I would also say at this point that because of the Brexit issues, um, immigration in the United Kingdom is now far more complex than it used to be for people who are Australian, South African and or New Zealanders. They're, um, they're well... I, I hesitate to say xenophobic approach, but their isolationist approach to um, immigration in the United Kingdom means that they're now having difficulty because they're running out of native-born teachers, but their immigration system has now actually mimicked the Australian system and has become so very difficult for actually to get uh, teachers um, from around the world to come and work there because it's, uh, it, it's so constrictive. It's a double-edged sword, sword for the poor education people in the United Kingdom at the moment. Very interesting. Very interesting. Thank you very mm. much, Robert. Is there anything else you'd like to say for our listeners? Well, actually, in my researches this week, I've come across a few things, um, both general and particular. Something I found very disturbing um, is that a very wealthy private school here in Victoria um, has poor reputation in terms of childhood sexual abuse, like in the 70s, 80s and 90s, and who knows what's going on there at the moment. And the school that I'm talking about is Xavier. Mm. Now, one of their ex-students um, quite recently um, was, was triggered as part of a psychological process to remember that they were in fact abused, quite badly abused, at the school that they went to, Xavier College. Um, back in the 70s. And so therefore, they are suing the school for, for all horrible things that happened to them at the time. But I think one of the most disturbing things is that as part of the court case, Xavier College has asked for and received permission to go through that, well, that, that child at the time, but that man's um, psychological records and records of interview um, that he had, or uh, not records of interview, but um, um, the transcripts of all his discussions with his psychologist. Mm. Um, that's I just think that's, yeah, that's I, I just think that's a worry. I think that's an extraordinary worry. The power um, of the private school lobby in this particular case is being used in the courts by the lawyers to um, bring to light, mm. as part of a court procedure, the confidential medical records of someone who is alleging abuse at the school. It'll be very interesting to see what what school the the judge what the judge says and um, in this um, request and uh, where that judge himself um, went to school. The judge um, has actually acceded to the request. Oh. The judge has said yes, yes, um, Xavier College can, or lawyers representing Xavier College can go through. The transcripts of um, the transcripts of the sessions between the plaintiff and their psychologist. I wonder what he would have said if it had been a confessional, uh, because well, course, you're, you're dealing here. You're course, actually the, dealing with the, the principle the of professional question. privilege in law. Yes, yes. I mean, a I'm psychologist sure isn't the same as, as I'm a sure priest. You well, no, but, but a psychologist is, is a profession and Correct. it's not like a lawyer, a, yeah. a lawyer or a journalist profession. Yeah. And um, for the judge to force, to force this man to give, what, you know, to, to give the records of what he said to his psychologist in private um, but so that it can be used in a court of law against him, I, I think is just, um, oh, I don't know, it's a, it's a sign of the times, it's deeply worrying. Well, it's um, but, um, very interesting how the law works um, and the whole the whole principle of professional privilege and who it um, who it uh, applies to and who it doesn't apply to. That's that's well, I, I think, I think a very it's interesting question. Interesting and um, it sets a precedent in terms of um, psychologists saying yes, yes, you can have a session and we can discuss this, but you must realise that um, mm. that who you're complaining about, <laughs> the church or the school can, of course, read everything we talk about. So let's now have a psychological session, a session to discuss your problems. 
Well, of I, course, I it was. Robert, it's been it's been the behaviour of the church and the bullying over over the previous decades that actually mm. led in the end to the royal commission. Um, well, it was set up, no, and it was a very brave thing that um, that Julia Gillard did to set up that commission. But, but people talk about these things as though they're in the past. This is happening in a court of law today mm. because the defendants um, aren't actually Xavier College; they are the Jesuits themselves. Yeah. So it is now um, a question of this man who is alleging abuse coming up against the might of the Catholic Church itself, mm. and their tactic is to. Um, go through exactly what it was that he said to his psychologist in confidence. Yep. Yep. Pretty bad. Obviously for the, for, for, for the legal benefit of, of their argument. Yep. I find it... Um, I just find it really sad. It's a strange country we're living in, isn't it? Well, it is very sad that religious people have to, have to yeah. uh, go to these lengths when, in fact, what Christianity should be about um, is something mm. quite different. Yes. Yeah, I would also like to point on a much broader note um, that there's a report that's just recently come out. Um, and the report, interestingly enough, is a broad report, but it's um, by, believe it or not, some religious people. There's actually the, not just religious people, but all sorts of people. The Community Council of Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, I came out with a report that basically Australia, in comparison to other OECD nations, is no longer a country with a fair go. We have higher incarceration rates than most other places in the world. Mm. And did you know that the Northern Territory has a higher incarceration rate than the United States of America? Well, that's that's a double-edged or a very interesting um a very interesting figure, Robert. <laughs> I think it yes. is a very interesting yeah. figure. I could go into more about this, but it's a very interesting report. But there is just one thing um, that I'd like to point out. Uh, Tim Costello, um, who is a religious man, is, is fronting um, the release of this report. But he says that, um, imagine in Australia where incarceration rates were falling, where the suicide rate is less than the road toll and where your postcode doesn't define your chances of getting a good education or a job. And I think that last point is the clearest one and the most relevant one, in fact, the most important one, because we now live in a country, Jean, where your postcode defines the chances of you getting a good education. And that is what we fight against. Well, of course, and Tim... that is now the problem. Yes, and Tim Costello, of course, is... Um uh, he's a good Baptist minister, but uh, the Baptist Union were quite happy at a crucial point to take state aid for Kerry Grammer. And uh, there were a few ba- there were a few Baptist ministers like the Reverend Salter who objected, but uh, the way he was treated was highly questionable. But yes, I think um, all of the churches uh, when. When it came to the point back in the 60s, uh, they were prepared to compromise and they're well compromised on the whole education issue these days. It's not just Davia, it's Kerry Grammar, it's the grammar schools, um, it's uh, King's School. I'm just just reporting the the doings of the court and the judgment of um, one judge in a case where one person was trying to take on Catholic Church, and just letting you know what's happening now in 2016 when it comes to these things. Well, on Royal the other side of no this, it's quite interesting, Robert. Uh, up in Sydney at the King's School with Tim Hawkes, the principal there, who's always been very, very vocal on the state aid issue, uh, there has been a, a complaint put forward there by uh, a similar complaint. And Tim Hawkes is going to walk away. He's going to resign soon and leave that school. So it's going to be quite interesting what kind of job he goes to. So, yeah. Um, Yes, but uh, the Anglican Church doesn't have the same resources, of course, in this country or throughout the world that that the the Catholic Church has. So that's all very interesting. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. That's all right, Jean. We... We have lots of resources. We have lots of resources here with the dogs because we have the resources of, I don't know, the hope that one day Australia will be a place where the postcode that you live in does not determine how good your education will be. And that's a very powerful force, actually. Yes, indeed. We also have the hope, Robert, 
that um, the so-called Christians go back to what they really were about and should be about. So we live in hope and we don't die in despair either. So um, hopefully you'll be well enough to come on next week too. and um, Look forward to it. Yes. And, um, and, and until then, uh, to all our listeners, keep the fight up. And um, to Jean and Dale, I'll, I'll speak to you soon. Bye. Take Bye. care, Robert. Bye. Public Interest Before Corporate Interests Action Group. Why is it so difficult to find a home, to pay rent, pay mortgage? Why is it so difficult to afford childcare? Get a decent education for the kids. Have so much trouble gaining access to public hospitals and healthcare. Finding a job, let alone a secure, well-paid one, to be able to pay for gas and power bills or even put food on the table. Remember when we could do all of this on one wage and an eight-hour day. We invented and built, discovered and taught. We made ships, planes and cars. We were among the world first in social, health, scientific and arts initiatives. Alas, no more. The three big parties are funded by corporates and therefore dependent and cannot honestly represent public interest. We are looking for like-minded people who would be interested in making significant actions to inhibit corporate power by pressuring politicians, writing public petitions, initiating public forums to inform and also give people a voice, organising demonstrations, standing a political candidate, investigative journalism and corporate vulnerability analysis. Contact PIBSI, www.pibci.net, www.pibci.net. Email info at pibci.net, pibci.net. Phone 0439395489. P.O. Box 20 Parkville, Victoria 3052. Public Interest Before Corporate Interests. If you would like to help put public interest before corporate interest, contact Pibsy. Uh, we can now come back to Australia and to the New South Wales Teachers Federation. It's much the same kind of thing that we've been talking about all of this uh, week. Uh, they are, are talking up in New South Wales in their press release on the VET fee help rorts show why governments must stop funding for profit providers. And this was put up on their website on the 24th of October 2016. There's been shocking new evidence of rorting and waste among for-profit private vocational training companies and it's more evidence to ban them from government funding and to properly fund TAFEs, according to the AEU, that's the Australian Education Union. The federal government's analysis of the flawed VET fee help loan scheme showed that private for profit companies are charging higher fees than TAFEs. They have lower completion rates and they're abusing the scheme through multiple enrolments. The AEU TAFE Secretary Pat Forward said that the federal government's decision to shut down VET fee help did not go far enough and no for profit provider should be eligible for any future loan schemes. Policymakers need to realise that any scheme that allows for-profit providers to access government funds will be abused. How much more evidence do we need that allowing for-profit providers to access government loans is an invitation to them to fleece taxpayers? Well, dogs would there add, not just for-profit providers, but uh, also people who aren't allegedly about profit, namely religious groups. Their business models and their big profit margins are built on charging big dollars for low-value courses. Attempts to cap costs will simply see them drive quality down even further. The funding which is going to for-profit should go to TAFEs, which have a strong record of delivering high-quality courses. All governments should ensure that at least 70% of all VET funding was reserved for TAFEs to give them the certainty that they needed. The analysis released by the federal government today showed that some for-profit providers had completion rates of less than 2%, yet still received over $100 million in government subsidies through VET fee help. What shocking figures. 2% 
2% of the students complete the course and they get $100 million. The data also shows the dramatic difference in fees between the public TAFEs and the private colleges accessing the loan scheme. For example, a diploma of early childhood education cost an average of 15000 at a private college in 2015 compared to 4000 at TAFE. Huge damage has already been done to TAFEs by reducing their funding and forcing them to compete with these shonky operators who are not interested in student welfare or quality. The federal government has already recognised the quality of TAFEs by making them automatically eligible for its new loan scheme. So why not increase funding to the part of the VET sector which is working the way that it should do? The flawed vet fee help scheme went hand in hand with cuts to government funding for TAFEs. With vet fee help gone, we need state and federal governments to restore funding to TAFEs to ensure that Australians have access to quality vocational training. So uh, the numbers are on the board. The evidence is there. The elites in Canberra should realise that they have the wrong doctrine. Let's not call it policy. Let's call it for what it is. It is a doctrine. It is this extremely stupid belief system that somehow in some areas like education, private's better than public. The numbers are on the board. The numbers are on the board all around the world. In America and England, it's failed. In Australia, it is failing and we are in great danger of falling behind the rest of the world. In Finland, in Finland, they don't have this policy. They give public funding to public education, and they have one of the best systems in the world. Let's just be sensible, shall we, and learn both from our own predecessors and those who have successful education systems in the rest of the world. But that's enough for me from now. Uh, We hope that you will stay listening to 3CR and that if you want to know more about us, you will visit our website at www.adogs.info. www.adogs.info. And if you want to hear this program again, then uh, you can go up to the 3CR website and listen to the podcast. But bye for now. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. Says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill went on to organize. Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you find your hill It's there you find
Says he. 